Good morning, everyone. Matt Hand here, the pastor of Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. How are we supposed to do church now? When that question first popped into my head three and a half, four months ago, I acknowledge I was terrified. I was stressed. I was anxious that when a global pandemic literally brought our city to its knees, brought our country, our international global economy to its knees. Lots of us were asking this question. People were blogging about this question. I was getting phone calls and texts left and right about this question. How do we do church now? And now that I've had a number of months to read and to pray and meditate on this question, how do we do church now? Okay, I'm still stressed and I'm still anxious about the answers, but I'm also a little bit more excited. I think this season is is bad in a lot of ways. We know, we've been talking about the ways that it's bad. I've been trying to lift you up in prayers and in encouragement for the past 14, 15 weeks as we've gathered this new way. It's bad because... Well, I mean, there's actual loss of life. There's loss of people's life savings. There's loss of job. There's so many terrible real world things happening that are, that are painful and that are tragic. But beyond that, I think all of you would say it's bad because it has shaken us out of our rhythms and habits. And we like it when things feel normal. We like it when we have some sense of predictability, some sense of control some sense of I'm able to choose a path forward and things generally go that direction. And that's all been taken away from us. And that feels bad. But I say it's good and it's God's grace because I think we're faced right now with three unprecedented things that I'm observing right now. Number one, we have an unprecedented opportunity, I think in in my lifetime, to depend on God. And I mean this in a 2 Corinthians 12, 9 sort of way where In our weakness, in our inability, we are hopefully forced, and I mean that in a gracious way, but forced to depend upon a God who is all-wise, who is all-powerful, who loves us and gave himself for us. So when we don't know the way forward, we have an unprecedented opportunity to say, Spirit of God, we depend on your presence in our life and your power in our lives, unprecedented opportunity for that. Secondly, I think we have an unprecedented opportunity to simply evaluate everything. I mean, everything's been flipped over on its head anyway. I mean, we've stopped a lot of the patterns of just how all of society, all of culture ran, all of how church ran. So what an amazing opportunity before we just try to run back and do what we were doing before to stop and evaluate and say, Lord, specific to church is this the best way in 2020 to reach the city of Denver with the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ? And if there are better ways to be doing things, then the third unprecedented thing I see is just the unprecedented opportunity and the freedom to change, to adapt, to be flexible and agile and just say, we need to do things new, a new way not because we're being novel, not because it's just change for the sake of change. Like we have to change to survive, let alone to help you thrive spiritually and mentally and emotionally as a holistic person made in the image of God. And so I'd be 
disappointed if we let this season of opportunity pass us by and not pause here on the brink of a new fiscal year for Gray City and say, Lord, what's our vision? What, what was wrong with the past? What needs to change? And what do you want to see from us as a church going forward? One of the questions I'm really excited about right now is simply the question, what does this make possible? I think it's natural for many of us, just our personality, how we're wired, is that you, you see the obstacle. You know, you would have never crashed the Titanic because you would only see the iceberg and you would have gone completely oppositely the other direction. Okay, you only see obstacles. But in addition to those obstacles, we need to see, okay, so what opportunity are those specific obstacles and challenges now making possible that may have not been possible even three or four months ago? Because God is always up to what he's up to, but God is also sometimes doing a new thing. And would we be wise to follow him and say, Lord, what new thing are you doing? What does this make possible for the glory of your great name, for the fame of Jesus, for the, for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in the community around us? What does this moment make possible that was not possible before? So I'm going to look forward this morning, but before I do that, I want to look back and just offer you a real quick critique on the American church, and I mean that like capital C, okay? Basically, I'm talking about white evangelicalism because that's kind of the niche of Christianity that I know best, and I'm from the inside, so I'm just simply critiquing ourselves in a way. But I, I want to show you why I'm not just eager to race back and just put things back the way they were. Because I think there were some things that were unhealthy in our ecclesiology, which is just a big word that means our beliefs about the nature, the identity of the church. They were not always healthy. Let me share with you a few ways that I see that that's true. Number one, before COVID-19, the American culture and even American Christian culture had already marginalized church life and spiritual life. What I mean is the typical American life is essentially built around four things, four priorities. Number one, work or vocation. Number two, sleep. Number three, family. Number four, entertainment. Let me just quantify that for you. The typical person on an average day spends eight hours working, seven hours sleeping, four hours watching television, and as of last year, two hours and 23 minutes a day on social media. Okay, so when we say I'm too busy to involve myself in the spiritual life of others, otherwise what we call church, it may be that we're not nearly as busy as we think we are. What we ought to say is it's just not a priority to me because the church has been marginalized. Number two Church and spiritual life has often been compartmentalized away from what we think of as real life. I call this the Sunday silo effect, where that hour or that 90 minutes on Sunday morning is like a silo, and we put something in that silo, and we're like, okay, I got my fix. I got my Jesus shot in the arm now for the rest of life. And we, we often see a total disconnect between what we're worshiping and saying we believe is true about God on Sunday mornings and the way we live 99% of the rest of our lives. 
We're bipolar spiritually. We have a, a church me, and we have the real me or the rest of me. And I think that's a problem. Number three, before COVID, American culture had already turned church into a self-help pep rally. You know what I'm talking about, pep rally. So high energy music followed by a very brief, short, you're all absolutely wonderful in every way imaginable kind of TED talk. We made church about us rather than the glory, the holiness, the love the grace, the justice of our great God. Christian Smith and his team in the famous book Soul Searching described the American church now as a philosophy of moralistic therapeutic deism. And basically what he said is the church has become a toxic cocktail of beliefs and practices designed to make you feel good about yourself because God exists for one purpose only, and that is basically to make you happy right now and get you home when you die. How has that message sustained people whose lives are falling apart because they've lost their job, they've lost their business, they've lost their life savings, they've lost their home or their apartment, and now they're on the street. They've lost their health. Many of them have lost loved ones to this insidious disease, this virus that has taken so many lives and persists in our culture today. How has this philosophy of moralistic therapeutic deism challenged us and confronted us and convicted us of sins like racism, where we excuse ourselves and say, oh, I have a black friend. See, I'm not a racist. And maybe you're not but maybe in a way that Jesus calls you to be, you are not an anti-racist either. You are not pursuing justice and mercy the way that Jesus calls us to pursue justice and mercy for the oppressed, for the vulnerable, for the hungry, for the sick, for the needy, for the widow, for the orphan. Number four, American culture has also turned church into a consumer product. It's just simply another thing that we like purchase, we buy, we consume. You know, this is why we do church shopping the way we do. Who has the, who has the marketing that is really attractive? What, what group of people do I want to associate with because that'll make me feel good about myself? And now you don't even have to get in your car to go to church. You can just sit at home, roll out of bed, put on your, you know, whatever, house slippers, go downstairs, still in your PJs, get a cup of coffee and just consume an hour long service. And if you don't like the music, you can click over to something else. If you don't like the message, you can click over, oh, this guy has a better message. And it's just something that we consume like a consumer product. That leads me to the final thing that I'm just making as an observation is that is that we've reduced church as a performance that we watch rather than a community that we engage in. I once heard football described as 100,000 people desperately in need of exercise, watching 22 guys desperately in need of rest. And while that's humorous, that is all too true sometimes of American church culture, where now we can literally stay at home and we have not even a live worship service that many of us plan around so that we can be there in spirit with our church family, but it's just something that it's kind of on demand. I'll consume it later whenever I feel like it's most convenient to consume this hour 
of performance. And we're just watching people that in some cases are exhausted by what they're trying to do to lead you into the presence of God week after week after week as many just do almost nothing. I think we're at a crossroads, not only culturally and socially and politically, I think we're at a crossroads in terms of what the American church is going to look like in this cultural moment going forward. I honestly believe that for years, maybe even decades, we will look back at whatever happens next and we'll say, 2020, and maybe especially March through like the election, set that new path for us as a culture, as a society, as a church. And that's why I want to talk about this right now. And if you think I think the future looks bleak or hopeless, and I know it sounds that way because I'm like a little bit observing the past, and I'll come to why in just a moment. Um, Some of you are looking at the church and you're saying, you know, we are on a long losing streak in the culture wars, and we are. And we've been kind of pushed out of the public square. We have a diminishing influence on our culture. People don't care what Christian. They don't even care if, like, if you're in jail or your rights are being trampled. Nobody cares, and, and maybe they don't. Perhaps introspectively, we could say that part of the problem with our diminishing influence in our culture is that so many of us are not salt and light and the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden kind of an alternate city, an alternate web of relationships within every city that the rest of the city should be able to look to and say, that's what grace looks like. They do justice. Let's learn about racism from them because those people get it. We haven't done that by and large. We've, we've compromised. We've become culturally conditioned. We've just turned church into something that we consume. It's a program. It's an event. It's a building. And from this crossroads, my goal is not simply to rush our church back to where we were, but to see this disruption, this whole series of disruptions as God's grace to lead us into a new place. By the way, I have tremendous hope, whether it sounds like it for the first few minutes or not. I have tremendous hope because Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, verse 18, he said to Peter, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, he's saying all the powers of darkness, all the demonic forces that gather at the gates of hell and the very entrance into death itself, none of that can prevail against my church. And I look over 2,000 years of church history and I rejoice to say that pandemics and plagues did not prevail against the church. World wars and genocides did not prevail against the church. Wicked and incompetent political leaders did not prevail against the church. Evil and unjust laws and systems of laws did not prevail against the church. Persecution and even martyrdom did not prevail against the church. And I take great hope in this last one. The church's own apathy and hypocrisy did not prevail against the church. Why? Because, friends, the church is not just God's idea. The church is God's bride and it's his body. And he says, if I love the church enough to literally shed my blood, to redeem, to rescue, to adopt and renew and restore the church, the church is going to be just fine. 
I have hope in the church because I have hope in Jesus. And I want to take just a little bit of time this morning in this message. Are we reseeding? In other words, drawing back, drying up, or are we reseeding, putting down more seed, new seed in faith that God's going to do something new? We're at that crossroads. The choice is ours. We move forward in repentance and faith. I got this title from a little short story that I shared with many of you a couple months back in a devotional in our e-newsletter that I used to keep a you know nice little tiny patch of urban turf right in my yard. And one summer day I walked out and these little brown spots were beginning to appear and then they were quickly getting bigger and bigger. And so you know, I did what anybody would do at brown spots, go, the, the grass is too dry. So I spent more time hand watering those little spots and the spots got bigger. I thought, well, what else could this be? Oh, maybe it doesn't have you know, enough nitrogen or something. So I, I put down fertilizer and then I water some more and the brown spots got bigger. And I'm like, oh man, um, let's, let's do some more reading. Oh, maybe some kind of like powdery mildew or some blight. And so you get some you know, different types of things you can put down to kill that and spots are getting bigger and bigger. And finally, I ran across an article online and this is probably many, many weeks into my different attempts to solve this problem. And this article said that those kinds of patches appear because there are grubs living under the ground and they literally come up underneath and they eat the roots of the grass. And so the grass shrivels up and dies because now it's rootless. Okay, so sure enough, I buy some insecticide, like these granules that you throw down and water in. And within a few days, that problem had stopped spreading and I was able to till up the soil and replant seed and within a number of months have a healthy lawn again. Well, I want to use that as an illustration for this moment we find ourselves in because society right now, I mean, there's, there's holes everywhere. There's patches everywhere. In the church, there's patches everywhere where we have been forced in some instances to recede, R-E-C-E-D-E, okay? But I want to give you kind of a three-step process for what I, where I want to see us going forward. Number one, we need to recognize the problem or problems Number two, replace at the root level. And number three, reseed your gospel identity. And I have a thesis here that if the church has bare spots where we are not healthy spiritually, relationally, in other ways, okay, where we don't look like the New Testament model of the church, where we're not pursuing our gospel mission the way that we should be, where we're not living out of our identity in Christ the way we should be, My thesis is this right now, this cultural moment is the opportunity of a lifetime to change, to go back to something different, to build, you know, maybe for some of us to literally build on a new foundation because what we were building was actually not on Christ at all, but was just on the barely Christianized version of the American dream or something else. Okay, so let's go. Number one, recognize the problem. And good news, friends, I already shared with you point one. You know, the problem is so often that we we don't have our ecclesiology straight. What we believe to be true about the identity of the church of Jesus Christ, again, to the degree that we're treating it like something that you just do or a service that you go to or a performance that you attend or a building 
To the degree that we marginalize the church, we compartmentalize the church, we treat it like a consumer product. And when when you bother me, when friction happens in the church and someone rubs me the wrong way or they don't follow up as often as I think they should, man, I'm out of here because there's a better product I can go consume right over here. Okay, so I've already said what the problem is. Is that very often we don't have a right theology. Number two, repent at the root level. Repent at the root level. So going back to my illustration of my yard, nothing superficial could fix the problem. You notice that watering does not fix the problem. You know, um, if I had gotten out a can of green spray paint and matched the color of the yard, that, as you know, it may look better from a distance, but that has not fixed the problem. I had to go down to the root level and do two things, kill and introduce new life. Okay, now, that's a very extreme way of putting it, but if you start reading almost anywhere in the New Testament, these letters to the churches, letters to believers, you realize that people like Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, for example, James, they're all saying the same thing, that at the level of your heart, something needs to die and something new needs to be planted to bring new life in its place. Okay, what needs to die are these Idols, these habits, these things that enslave us, these affections that overpromise and underdeliver and, and pull us away from our true identity in Christ and just disintegrate that image of God that's been stamped on us. But we don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and what I see in spiritual life so often is that we are super quick to address symptoms of a problem. We basically play spiritual whack-a-mole. Okay, we see a symptoms pop up and we're like, bam, verse, bam, principle that I heard from so-and-so on the podcast that I always listen to, bam, 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 bam. And we never go down to the root level of the heart to say, why is this happening? Where in the world is this coming from? This barrenness, this recession in my life of things that I want to see that are good and healthy. And all I mean by saying repent at the root level is that we agree with God that our affections are off, that, that, that our priorities are off, and we confess those things with our mouths, and we turn around, and we ask God to renew us at that root level, okay? Then thirdly, when I say reseed your gospel identity, I'm still working off this analogy of planting seeds, and when you plant a seed, what do you expect to come up? Well, if it's a Kentucky bluegrass seed, you get more Kentucky bluegrass. If it's a Roma tomato seed, you get more Roma tomatoes. You know, if it's a Macintosh apple, you get more Macintosh apples and so on. You know this, okay? So the reason I'm saying is we plant gospel identity seeds is because that's what we want to see growing up in our lives. Instead of, again, spiritual whack-a-mole with symptoms and stuff where, where we're just saying, okay, I see bad fruit in my life, so I'm going to remove the fruit and I'm going to grab fruit from over here and tape it to my life. There, I fixed the problem. Well, we didn't because we didn't plant something that is going to grow organically in our lives through a connection to Christ and his spirit. Plant seeds of gospel identity. Other ways to say this, plant, plant the seeds of Christ in you. Plant the seeds of his life and death and resurrection 
over and over again in your soul, in your thoughts, in your affections. Plant the gospel hope. Plant Plant what he says is true of your identity. You know, instead of listening to the the siren song of society saying, this is what gives you significance, this is what makes you important, you listen to the voice of Jesus saying, no, this is who you are. You're, You're forgiven, you're justified, you're loved, you're adopted, you're mine, and you're part of this community of believers. And this is what I want to talk to you about in just closing is that everywhere the New Testament talks about the nature of church, It is not a building, it is not a program, it is not a performance, it is not something you just go and do and check a box and leave that silo to go back to real life. Everywhere the Bible talks about the church and the nature of the church, it's basically saying the church is a community of Jesus followers who are on mission together to make and mature more followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, at the core of your identity, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just a single, you know, lone ranger Christian floating out there somewhere. Jesus says, the apostles say, you are part of a community. You're a citizen of a new kingdom. You're, 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 you're adopted into a new family as a son or daughter of God the Father, as a, as a younger brother or sister of Jesus Christ, your true elder brother. By the way, this is what the very first Christians understood in Acts chapter 2, which you can look at with me if you want to follow along. But as soon as they heard the gospel message for the first time and realized that Jesus was the true Messiah, and they put their faith in him, and they turned from their idols, and they turned from their religion, and they turned from their rebellion, and they believed in Jesus, and they received the Spirit, Acts 2 verse 42 begins like this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know what I hear in this text? The moment the very first Christians got it, they formed a community of disciple makers. Period. Like, no qualifications. When they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they did not try to relate to him as individuals. They did not carve out a program and call it church. They did not have an hour-long service on Sunday morning or Saturday night, which is more convenient. They said, we are a community of people doing life together ordinary life together and spiritual life together because there's really no difference. There is no difference between the secular and the sacred. All of life is sacred now in God's calling. So we're going to do this life together and it's going to feel as natural as breathing in and breathing out. And this is kind of what I want to give to you is that the breathing in, the church gathered and over and over again, the church gathered in worship and to learn and scattered to work, to serve, to fellowship, to share their faith. Then they gathered again. Then they scattered again. Then they gathered again. Then they scattered again. And and, and all of life was built 
around this mission and this identity of being a community of Jesus followers. This is so different than the Americanized, bastardized view of church today. Back in the day, you know, Jesus, when he entered the world as one of us, he chose to be a Jew. Okay? So that was the life and the culture that Jesus was accustomed to firsthand. Life was built around the synagogue. Okay, Jews did life together. It was a cultural thing based on ethnicity and race. What's interesting is when the early church formed, and it was Jew and Gentile, and that rocked everybody's world. But it was Jew and Gentile. And by the way, that should have been the end of the conversation about race in the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, we have a long history of things to lament and to repent of. Because Acts 2, if not sooner, should have been the end of all time of any kind of racism or oppression of any kind of race, any kind of slave owning, any of that garbage any of the systemic stuff that goes on. The Church of Jesus Christ, even if that's what all of culture was doing, should have been the one group of people who stood up and said, that is not our practice. That is not our identity. We will never do that. In fact, we will fight for them until they have the same freedoms and opportunities that we have as the people with privilege and power. Anyway, I digress. When Jesus formed the church, he did not throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. He didn't get rid of the system, the model that was so healthy of gathering to worship and learn and then scattering to work and to serve and to fellowship. All we find out in a passage like Ephesians chapter 2 is that Jesus said this new community which is very close-knit, is not going to be brought together on the basis of race or ethnicity, like, oh, we're descendants of Abraham. The new thing that everyone is rallied around and, and, and fused together because of is the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. He loved the Jew. He loved the Greek or the Gentile. He loved the man, but he loved the woman and the child. He loved the free man, but he also loved the slave. He loved the powerful, but he loved the weak. He loved the healthy, but he loved the sick. He loved the rich, and he loved the poor. And there was no difference, we read in Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians. We are one family, one community in Jesus Christ because of his grace. Ephesians 2, 13 through 14, where Paul is speaking mainly to Gentiles, he's saying, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you didn't have the laws, you didn't have the promises, you weren't descendants of Abraham, but he says, you once were far off, but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who took the two and made one, one new man, one new family, one new community. He goes on in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Okay, so what's he saying? He's saying, friends, the basis of this kind of community where we gather and scatter and do life together, the basis of that close-knit community is no longer race or ethnicity or gender or any of these other things. It's the sacrificial love of Jesus. 
It's the reconciling work of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the fact that he's adopted all of us by the same grace if we are followers of him. But the model of the early church continued to look like the model of the synagogue. That's not what church looks like in America in 2020, is it? In fact, it's not what it's looked like for a long time. And I'm just wondering out loud, casting vision out loud, what if it looked more like that? Where we built into our lives a rhythm of gathering to worship and to learn. Like, hey, what am I missing? I was out ministering this week and I was trying to share something and I, I don't know. So I'm eager to go back and learn and get encouragement from other brothers and sisters in the faith. And now, now, now go back out and work again and serve and share my faith and live on mission out there. Breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out. And I, I want to kind of leave you with this thesis that I, I think there's a reality perhaps that we may have to be willing to appear less successful as a church in order to actually be far more successful. And what I mean is if you're looking for a successful church right now, of course, you go to the website, you can look at the calendar or the list of tabs, like what are all the programs? What can they do for me and my grandmother and my, my uh, youth and my child and this and that and the other, and they've got something for everything. And what inevitably ends up happening is the church over programs every night of the week, the same 10% of people feel committed to running all of those things and they're burning out while everybody else is kind of doing nothing. That is not a sustainable and healthy model for the bride and the body of Christ. And as someone called to shepherd and care for all of you, I don't want you in the 10% any more than I want you in the 90%. And I don't mean that those are the actual ratios in our church. Okay, It's not. Maybe it's half and half. Maybe it's even better than that. Maybe 75% of you are involved and 25% aren't. But I don't want to see you in either group. I want to see a, a leveling of the playing field where we say, I understand my identity in Christ. I'm sowing into my gospel identity in Christ. And if I'm part of a community that does life together around the person and work of Jesus, fellowshipping and praying and encouraging and convicting and building up and teaching one another and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another and worshiping together and all of that stuff, I'm in. I'm in as a part of just the, the, the normal fabric of my life looks like that rather than just a program or an event. Friends, Jesus didn't say, come to church. He said, go make disciples. And again, the very first people who heard this message, who believed in Jesus, who received the fullness of the Holy Spirit, they intuitively and immediately understood that's how we're going to live. And I, I want you to just imagine for a moment if you actually lived this rhythm of gathering and scattering. So when, when you're scattered, it looks kind of like this. You're not just going to work, exhausting yourself there, coming home and either overworking or just completely vegging on social media and television apparently. Maybe you do that part of the time. Maybe some other times what you do is you say, hey, I got to eat dinner tonight anyway. Let's have a church friend over and maybe uh, another friend that doesn't yet know Jesus. And let's just fellowship around our table showing hospitality. That is not something for only those with the gift of hospitality. Every single family, every single individual, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, open your home and open your table. And, and it's fine. Do it outside right now. 
Okay, do it in the backyard because that's safer right now. But, but you understand my point of this kind of fellowship and hospitality that's just built into life and having conversations around what are you struggling with? How can I pray for you? Now I know a few people. Now we're all providing pastoral care to one another. Now we're encountering questions we don't know the answers to. Now we have challenges where we need to be uplifted. And so can you imagine what the atmosphere of Sundays would be like when we come back together, when you're coming in, having served all week, having thought about other people's needs, and you've rested, and so you're ready to go. I think the atmosphere would be electric. I think it would be ecstatic. I think we would be thrilled to say, I cannot wait to worship together with my church family and hear something that's going to build me up in my faith, give me a shot in the arm to get back out there and stay in the game, living my life on mission for Jesus Christ. And you know what? Most of that stuff is gonna fly under the radar if we're doing it, not like a Pharisee, like blowing a trumpet, look at what I'm doing, it's awesome, I'm so great, but just doing it. So I'm gonna have to give you venues and opportunities and ways to share those. I wanna capture your stories as you do that. I wanna videotape testimonies where it's kind of like featuring you and what God is doing through you because you are the church. We are the church. And my vision for a time when we cannot continue to gather in all the same ways is simply that you embrace your gospel identity, who Jesus says you are. And you get out there and you redeem the time. You respond in faith and good works. So let's start reseeding together. Let's trust God to take those seeds of our gospel identity, seeds that look like Jesus, that look like his love, his justice, his mercy. And if we're putting those kinds of seeds in the ground, in the soil of people's hearts, and reminding each other day by day that that's what God's like and that's what he says we're like, and we're trusting God to work, and God loves to work when we're trusting him to work, I think the sky's the limit, friends, on maybe, again, appearing less successful but deep down knowing we're all incredibly healthy and joyful because this is how Jesus designed us to live. So let's encourage one another as we pursue this path, this vision, this way of Christ together this coming year. God bless.